Hey everybody, you're listening to Life Below the Surface, presented by Carriage Kia. The podcast where we take you on a deeper dive into the lives of the animals at Georgia Aquarium and the people who care for them. Coming up on this episode... In general, penguins are monogamous, but saying that they mate for life is not completely accurate. In November is when the start of breeding season takes place. So we actually go out with a bunch of dried lavender and we put that out, and that kind of is the, the first spark of, of our breeding season. There are not many of them left. Expectations of them going extinct in the wild in 10 years is probable, which is pretty sad. So it's really important for zoological facilities to be able to support them as a species to ensure the, their survival. I'm Josh Blaylock. For the past 20 years, I've been in the zoological community. I was an animal care specialist for 15 of those years, caring for sea lions, dolphins, otters, walruses, birds, and a wide variety of different species. And now I'm very happy to be the senior manager of exhibits and projects here at Georgia Aquarium. In this podcast, I'm going to introduce you to some of my amazing co-workers and tell you some behind-the-scenes stories of how Georgia Aquarium works. This is Life Below the Surface, presented by Carriage Kia. Life Below the Surface is presented by Carriage Kia in Woodstock. Carriage is Georgia's leading Kia dealer and one of the top dealers in the entire nation. Service, community, and education are hallmarks of Carriage Kia in Woodstock. When it's time for you to lease or purchase your new vehicle, we hope you'll consider Carriage Kia in Woodstock. Check them out 24-7 at carriagekiawoodstock.com. Hey everybody, this is your host Josh. Welcome back to another episode of Life Below the Surface. Today we are taking a trip to our African penguin habitat to hear tales of penguin love stories. I am joined by Jason Jones, curator of Mammals and Birds. This one comes with a little bit of a disclaimer. We'll be talking about some more adult themes in this particular episode, but it's very important for conservation that we actually discuss this because folks, of course, are drawn to the penguins. Everyone loves penguins, but this particular species of penguin is actually in trouble in their native habitat, right? That is correct. Yeah, there are probably recent estimate about 14,000 pairs in South Africa and Namibia remaining. So that's under 30,000 individuals, a 97% decline from just over 100 years ago. And they are an endangered species, correct? They are an endangered species and could potentially become extinct in the next 10 years. Wow. Okay, so that makes what we're actually talking about very important because obviously we need more penguins and to have more penguins, certain things need to happen. And that's what we're here yes. to talk about today. <laughs> so let's just start off with one very important question for our listeners. How do penguins mate? Good question. So penguins are not sexually dimorphic, which means when you look at them, all penguins look the same from top to bottom. You can't tell who's a male and who's a female just by looking at them. The only way you can really distinguish between the two is by doing DNA testing through blood, or if you happen to be at the right place at the right time and see a female penguin lay an egg. Otherwise, they look exactly the same. Penguins have an area underneath their tail called a cloaca. That is where everything comes out, eggs, guano, which is a mixture of urine and feces. And that is an area where the male will climb on top of the female. They will push them together, their cloacas, and that is where the process takes place. The eggs internally will get fertilized from the semen from the males and... Um, that's pretty much how they do it. Okay, so I'm going to touch on something that you just mentioned there. And that was when the males and females meet, 
sometimes it's difficult to find the males and females amongst a, a large group of penguins. Is that accurate? Yeah, they will live in large colonies. They are a very territorial species, so they will designate specific places to build their hut. So the penguins will often claim those territories, but they can call to one another. Penguins have really good hearing, and so they can identify each other based on their calls. Gotcha. Okay. So let's say that one particular penguin has found a territory, starts building a nest, starts making that call out to prospective mate out there. Is it true that these animals will actually mate for life? Close. A lot of people are under the impression that all penguins mate for life and that it varies between penguin species. You will oftentimes get pairs that are monogamous and will remain together for years and years and years, if not their entire life. But just like people, some of them stray, will have relationships with the neighbors. And sometimes after a period of time, they'll just say, you're not doing it for me anymore. And and venture off and break up. So in general, penguins are monogamous, but saying that they mate for life is not completely accurate. Okay, so what you're saying is that there could very well and now should be a reality show based off of penguin relationships. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a telenovela on the African coast for sure. There's penguin infidelity. There is infidelity. That happens, yes. Wow. Okay. Well, that, that took a turn I did not expect, yeah. <laughs> but that, that's, that's nature, I guess, right? Okay, so... We just said that you know, sometimes they can stray away, the, the relationships and potential misconception that they mate for life. But one, <laughs> one anecdotal case of them staying together for a very long time would be probably, I'm guessing, maybe yours and a lot of our listeners' favorite duo, and that's Charlie and Lizzie. Mm-hmm. Charlie and Lizzie, yeah. Tell us the Charlie-Lizzie story. The listeners want to mm-hmm. hear it. I want to hear about them. Tell us the, mm-hmm. full, the full story of okay. these two amazing birds. Sounds good. Charlie is 37 years old and Lizzie is 36 years old. They have been together for almost their entire lives. So they probably paired up when they were two to three years old and have ventured to several different facilities and have remained together throughout. So they've been together for quite some time, oftentimes older than the staff that are taking care of them. And I can't even get a text back. That's sad. It's amazing. So how did they meet? So I'm not sure if they were actually pair bonded together. It was a long time ago or whether they kind of found each other naturally, but they were each other's first mate is what the rumor was. So it is very likely that they saw each other, fell for each other instantly, began to court and flirt with one another. And that pair bond was solidified at that point. And that brings us to where they are today. Well, speaking of where they are today, what does a day to day look like for this happy couple. They are a geriatric couple, so they move around a little bit slower than than they used to, but they are constantly together, hanging out, preening one another, swimming together, eating together. So they they pretty much do everything together and have been loved since since first sight. Wow, it's amazing. Okay, so that's Charlie and Lizzie there. Now, are they kind of an outlier or have you heard other stories about birds similar to them that have stayed together that long? There are some pairs that have been together for long durations of time. They are the longest pair that I'm aware of, but I'm sure that there are some other pairs on our habitat that have been together for 10 years, 15 years, so that are just not as old as the two of them. So some of those pairs may be, may be together as long as Charlie and Lizzie, but we'll just have to wait and see. Right. So do Charlie and Lizzie have any offspring? Great question. Charlie and Lizzie have had offspring in the past and have done a lot of fostering where they will take 
chicks that have either been abandoned by their parents or not cared for by their parents or parents had too many and we gave one to Charlie and Lizzie. They were wonderful foster parents and helped raise them. But at this point, because of their age and the stress and work that it takes to, to raise a chick, we, we don't task them with that at this point. Gotcha. So it's obvious from just even looking at our social media, from looking at responses to different uh, episodes of the aquarium, which they were featured on, where can guests get a chance to actually see Charlie and Lizzie? Probably the best case would be to participate in one of our penguin encounter programs. We periodically will bring them in and oftentimes we'll bring them in together. They resonate off of each other. And so we reinforce good behavior by bringing in one of them for one of those programs. We generally don't put them up on the habitat too much. There are lots of rocky crags for them to to have to navigate through. And so we try to keep life as easy as possible for them. Gotcha. So basically kind of looking ahead for Charlie and Lizzie, they're in their you know, obviously the, the, the sun sets just like it does for all of us. Right. But I know they're getting the best care possible. Can you kind of take us into a little bit of what uh, geriatric care of our famous couple is like? For sure. Uh, to put it in a little context as well, African penguins, their general lifespan is about 15 years of age in their natural environment. So to have more than doubled that is pretty, pretty unique. As they age, like you said, we all do, they... Develop art, can develop arthritis, which Charlie has, makes moving around a little bit harder. But day-to-day care, they get laser treatment for their joints. We will often do kind of like pedicures for the bottoms of their feet to make sure that their feet are nice and soft. They get to eat pretty much whatever they want, you know? They don't need to find a mate anymore, so they, they, <laughs> they can eat and gain as much weight as they want to. But we pay attention to them, make sure that they're getting lots of exercise and opportunities for enrichment to be able to move around, go into different areas of the aquarium, walk around the aquarium, and participate in our encounter programs. That's awesome. So basically, they are, they're spoiled. Yes, they're, they are retired. Yes. Awesome. Nice retired couple there. That's great. All right. So we've just heard a little bit more of an inside story about Charlie and Lizzie, two very well-known penguins here. Everyone's kind of favorite penguin couple. Yep. But uh, let's let's talk about some of the other couples that might exist there in the African penguin habitat. What's some of the drama currently going on there? It can be very much like a soap opera. We've had a pair that had been together for quite some time. And the female, after years of being with this male, decided that she was interested in another male. So she would bounce back and forth between the two sides of the habitat to go visit the other male. And they would hang out together, uh, which was pretty incredible. However, when the female would go hang out with one particular male, the other male would venture outside of his nest and go visit another male in the other side of the habitat. And they would hang out together. So that male also had a female partner as well. So it, there's a lot of uh, around the habitat pairing and mating and, and flirting and courting going on. There's a lot. There's a lot there. <laughs> you say that so nonchalantly. I guess that may be known <laughs> I'm used in to the it. penguin I'm world. I'm used to it, yeah. Goodness <laughs> sakes, man. That, I mean, that. okay. So we have a, a, a couple. The female goes to see another male. Yes. The male then goes to see another male. Another male, yep. Who... That male has another female that he's then going, did, did I get that right? Yes. And this is normal to you. This is, it, this it, is, it is at this point normal. Yes. It this just, is who's penguins. Jackie hanging out with today. <laughs> and, and that, that causes the domino effect. 
who's Jackie hanging out with today? <laughs> All right. Well, at least we have another. Uh, at least we have another topic for season two yeah, of go. Life Below the Surface. What is Jackie up to today? <laughs> so your homework now is okay. you have to. I want you to. I want notes on Jackie. <laughs> I, I want the the inside scoop. All right. On this because that uh, okay that just took a turn. But that's why people are listening. That's the, right. The, the drama that is African penguin love stories. It's that part of the show where we're going to dive deeper into the unique and into the unknown, which are the two nicknames that we have for Carly and Kelsey. <laughs> Ladies, thank you so much for joining me today. I cannot wait to hear what you have for us right now. So I guess I'm either unique or unknown. I cannot pronounce your last name correctly, <laughs> so you can be whatever you would like to be. Well, Josh, either way, I have a great fact for you today. So we're talking about penguins. Now, humans actually give names to like different calls that animals make, which is something I find fascinating in general. Like, what does the penguin call it, right? But we call them, so they have a bray, a yell, and a haw. And these different sounds we've associated with what they're using the call for just through observation. So the bray is kind of what they say attracts a mate. So that's what they're doing to say like, hey, I'm attractive. Come check me out. The yell defends their territory. So they've got their spot. Stay away from their spot. And then the haw is to kind of locate each other. So if they're trying to locate their mate or just another known penguin, they use that haw sound, as we say. I had no idea. That's very cool. Very cool. So did you guys actually know that those brays and that haw is actually what gave the African penguin its other nickname, which is actually the jackass penguin? That makes total sense because, yeah, those noises I think I would, or the names that we give those noises, I think I would use to describe the sounds that a donkey makes. So I think that tracks. No, I think it absolutely does. And it's also, you know, it's a nickname I've had for a long time. So I guess it must be from the sounds I make as well. Ladies, thank you so much. That was a really cool fun fact. I'll see you guys in the next Fin Files. What other type of uh, inside scoop? What's the drama going on in the African penguin habitat right now with other couples and, and things like that? In November is when the start of breeding season takes place. So we actually go out with a bunch of dried lavender and we put that out and that kind of is the the first spark of of our breeding season. The penguins will all kind of go around, pick up this dried lavender and help build their nest and that is kind of like what solidifies, hey, it is time to get going. Okay. All right. So we're going we're going to pause right there. Okay. Dried lavender. Yes. I need an explanation. So dried lavender is essentially like a grass and they will bring it into their huts to help build their nests. We use dried lavender because it is antimicrobial and so it prevents a bunch of things growing in the nest while while they have it. So it's not like an aphrodisiac. It kind is of it thing. is not. It okay. it smells so now every time I smell lavender, I associate it with penguin breeding season. As we all will now. Yes, yeah. yes. I, I was about to say I need to go get some scented candles apparently. Okay, so lavender. You lay lavender down there, which yep. I'm sure is just it, okay. So sets the mood maybe for the, it does. <laughs> maybe yeah, for the right. team. Yes, but okay. So they see the lavender down there, and then they go into the nest building. Yep. Okay. Go from there. Yep. Both males and females will go and pick up their nesting material and go build a nest. So they they just plop it into their territories. Around that time, also you may have some pairs that are looking for some new huts. We have some established territories, then we have some younger individuals who might be exploring other areas, and they get into squabbles because everybody wants the penthouse, everybody wants the best seat in the house. But um, after the squabbles have been determined, who gets to live where? They they build up their nest and then breeding occurs and and 
keep our fingers crossed for eggs. And this is actually something that, that our everyday guests can actually observe. Oh, correct? absolutely. Yes. Yep. Starting on November 15th ish is when we'll put out the lavender and we'll periodically put it out throughout the rest of the season. But usually around mid November is kind of when, when most of that nest building is going to take place. Okay. So nest building is kind of in the fall. Yes. Let's say that our listeners are listening to this down the road. Yep. What's some different type of behaviors that gives obviously reproduction feeding. Those are what drives animals you know they want to want to reproduce let's kind of go through the seasons there like what does the winter spring summer and then we already talked about the fall what does the different seasons mean as far as what guests can see when they actually go up to the to the very immersive habitat yeah so fall is essentially nesting season building all of that winter is generally when we're going to see chicks if we're having chicks they will be out on the habitat once they emerge from from their egg and are generally taken care of by parents or by foster parents so other pairs that either didn't lay or are not part of our ssp program which we'll talk about here in a little bit and yeah so you you get may get the opportunity to see chicks out there in in the winter from december to february very cool what about the uh, the spring and summer then? Spring and summer is usually reserved for molt. Uh, penguins go through an annual process where they puff up and lose all of their feathers and then grow new feathers in. And they do that in order to protect their waterproofing. So their feathers are waterproof. They have an oil gland at the base of their tail called the uropygial gland. And they pull on it. It releases this oil and they spread oil all over their feathers. That essentially keeps them water resistant when they're swimming through the water. But as time goes on, those feathers don't hold on to that oil as well. And so they need to get rid of those old feathers and grow new ones in. It's called a catastrophic molt because they lose essentially all of their feathers at once. And during that time, they can't go swim because they would get too cold. So they don't eat during that time. So about two weeks or so beforehand, they will gorge themselves and they could potentially gain up to half of their body weight in two weeks. And then they get real bloated, real chubby, wings begin to swell and pop their feathers just kind of pop off and then slowly fall out. And then they live off that fat reserve for the next few weeks while the new feathers grow in and then they're back to their normal size. So the whole process takes about a month, but that's usually what happens in in spring slash summer. Nice. So basically these animals are driven kind of by the hormones inside, you know, the, these natural occurrences are all a part of the breeding and the, and basically the life cycle of these animals, correct? Absolutely. Crazy. Okay. So depending on what time you guys get a chance uh, out there to come visit, you might see a lot of these different types of behaviors and things going on as you visit our African penguin habitat. So we've talked about what guests can see. We've talked about kind of what the year looks like for these animals based off of their, their natural kind of inclinations there. Let's get into, and you kind of just touched on it. Let's get into why this is important. Why do we have an African breeding program and get as much detail as you want. I know that's a kind of a a very short question with an unbelievably (laughs) definitely detailed answer, but it's why we're here and it's, it's very, very important. So why do we have an African penguin breeding program? So as I mentioned, the population in Africa, uh, these guys live in South Africa and Namibia, is extremely low. Again, 97% decline in the last 100 years. So there are not many of them left. Expectations of them going extinct in the wild in 10 years is probable, which is pretty sad. So it's really important for zoological facilities to be able to support them 
as a species to ensure the, their survival. We participate in what's called a species survival plan, and many zoos and aquariums around the country participate in them. And that survival plan, we know the genetics of every single individual and their background. And every two to three years, a group comes together and looks at the genetics of all of the facilities, hundreds of penguins, and determines who should be breeding with whom to make sure that we have the best genetic diversity amongst the zoological population. Wow. So it's very detailed. So basically what you're saying is we're on it. We're involved. We're trying to you know, stop this animal from becoming extinct. Yes. Wow. And have you or any members of the team, have we actually been to Africa? Yes, we have sent staff over the last few years, not during COVID, but the years prior to that, and hopefully again in the near future. There is an organization in South Africa called SANCOB, which is the Southern African Foundation for the Conservation of Coastal Birds. And so they take care of penguins, but they also take care of all other types of seabirds that live off the coast of South Africa. But they are the frontline workers who are going out and monitoring the penguin populations. They will take abandoned eggs and abandoned chicks and will raise them and re-release them. They will also take care of injured birds, and they have done so with African penguins, they do that every year, but they've done so with cormorants and they had a flamingo crisis a few years ago as well. So they, they do a lot of work and we've been fortunate to send staff over there and get to be kind of in the, the front lines being able to help them. It was a pretty awesome experience when I got to go. So you did get to go personally? I did. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. What was that experience like? Had you ever been there before or was it all, was it a culture shock and environmental shock? What was a couple of things that stood out from, from your trip there and seeing wild African penguins? At the facility, it's pretty incredible the work that they do. Depending on the season, you can have 25 birds or you may have 150 birds. So every single day and every single person's experience is going to be totally different based on, on what comes in. And while you're there, there might be some type of situation where a handful of birds comes in a varying species and everybody just kind of jumps in to help. But it's constant feeding and constant cleaning and constant fish organization and deployment. And it's a lot. So that was pretty awesome to partake in. And then getting to go to the beaches for the release, we got to, we were very fortunate. We got to release, I think probably 11 birds when I was there on my trip and getting to see them go back out into the ocean was pretty incredible. And then on days off, just getting to go to the beach and seeing penguins right beside where you're, where you're hanging out is pretty incredible. So I think it's really important and idealistic for everyone to be able to experience that. But if the species goes extinct, they're not going to enjoy the same experience that I did. Right. And I guess that it's worth saying as well that by visiting places like us here and seeing our African penguin habitat, we are able to take the money that's raised through general admissions and various events and things throughout the building and be able to actually send our teams out there to the front lines to assist those and to, to really have an impact. It's not just Atlanta. That's one thing I always want to, to get across to people is that when you visit Georgia Aquarium, it doesn't just benefit Atlanta and things like that. It actually, our footprint stretches all over the world. And in South Africa is definitely one of those footprints. Absolutely. Yeah. In addition to sending staff, we've been able to send thousands of dollars over the last several years to help support the organization. So African penguins are near and dear to our hearts. And so we are, we are dedicated to their conservation and, and their protection. There are so many unique and exciting careers here at Georgia Aquarium, and not all of them require you to wear a wetsuit every day. I'm here with Susan Walsh, manager of environmental health, to learn more about her job and how she found herself working at the largest aquarium 
in the Western Hemisphere. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Josh. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, Susan, your job here is extremely, extremely important. And most of our guests or even our listeners probably don't even know that your job exists, but it's a very important one. So today's going to be a pretty cool opportunity. So in talking about your team, what's their background? What are you looking for when you're hiring a new staff member, team member to join your environmental health crew? I guess the answer to that would have two parts. One would be educationally. Do they have good, solid science? Currently, we have a certified microbiologist. We have a woman with her master's degree in analytic chemistry. But beyond that, we want people that love animals and they're team players that, you know, if there's something that goes on where it requires everybody to work together, we want people that will do that. And so we do always ask other questions like, you know, what do you do in your spare time? What is your pet? What kind of pet do you have? What is your favorite animal? We ask questions like that to establish that they really will fit in, not only with the science side of it, but also with the teamwork side of it, but then also with the educational outreach. We have a lot of little children that walk by the lab, and sometimes you'll see their little heads bobbing and they can't see in the window. So we want people that will go to the door, welcome these children in, and be able to explain things like the nitrogen cycle to a five-year-old. So we want people that really want to get the word out that like teaching and are willing to do it and understand the subject matter well enough to break it down for any age. Susan, that was awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today and giving us some insight into your fascinating career. Well, <laughs> up until just recently at this time of recording, I never thought that I would be involved with anything African penguin related until I was tasked with bringing in a 16 foot tall one. Oh, wow. Yeah. Have you seen the 16 foot tall African penguin out at the entrance? I have not yet. Okay, Jason, we're going to go after this recording <laughs> and we're going right. to go check out probably one of the weirdest projects I've ever been a part of Okay, as a way to highlight our facility and a way to highlight our African penguins. We, I guess years ago, had a 16 foot tall penguin statue live on a water tower in mm. South Atlanta. Okay. This, uh, this penguin is no longer on that water tower, and it now lives at our entrance to the building. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, making it the largest penguin in the state of Georgia. In the entire world, I would guess. Actually, no. No, we're, really? We lost by 10 feet, because trust oh. me, I looked up Guinness Book of World Records. <laughs> There's another penguin that's 27 feet tall, but it's cheating, because the penguin itself is only 10 feet, but it's on a, uh, you know, like a really tall, 16-foot tall, like, concrete base oh. or something. Our penguin is legit. 16 feet yeah. tall. So anyway, so we do have the world's tallest or Georgia's, I'm sorry, tallest penguin at our entrance. So when guests listen to this and you walk up, you will not be disappointed. You will see a 16 foot tall roadside esque attraction looking giant penguin right there at the surface. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. At the surface of the uh, aquarium there. So penguins are near and dear to our heart there. We love them. They've been here since the aquarium opened, correct? That is correct. Nice. And we're hoping to have them into the very near future and hoping to correct that 10-year kind of uh, prophecy of, of them going extinct. Yes. Um, and that's what you and your team are, are doing a great job of. So let me ask you this, Jason. If there's some folks listening out there or some you know, younger folks, something like that, how does one get into a career being able to care for such a critically endangered animal? Good question. So there are three main things that if you're interested in becoming a penguin caretaker or a trainer in any regard within the zoological field, three main things that you're going to need. One of them is go to school, 
you need to get a college degree for most facilities. A lot of times facilities want you to study biology, marine biology, psychology. There's a whole section of psychology that focuses on animal behavior, but also getting used to being on stage and performing is super beneficial. So a lot of the skills that you can learn in a variety of different educational backgrounds can be attributed to, to your work here. Another would be getting hands-on experience. So partaking in internships or volunteerships, learning that working with animals all day is not playing with animals all day. Birds in particular, penguins especially, cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. Birds are messy, penguins are messy. And so we get to take care of them and clean up after them. So it's important that you realize that Working with animals is not equivalent to playing with animals. Uh, It's a lot of hard work. And lastly, if you're going to want to work with marine or aquatic species, you're going to need to get scuba certified and get practice doing that and become comfortable in the water. So those are really the three main things that you're going to need to do to get into the field. Gotcha. So, okay, from, (laughs) from my previous work experience, I've worked with some pretty smelly animals Mm -hmm. as well sea lions uh walruses and otters tend to be some pretty uh uh, pungent mornings (laughs) um but i'm not gonna lie to you jason i never actually worked with penguins directly but uh there is a particular odor that sometimes just emanates through this facility that can only be attributed to your African penguins. That is correct. And your team is one of the very few teams as they walk through the building. You know, all these young, they're very, very beautiful men and women walking through the building there with just that Pepe Le Pew cloud <laughs> of smell just emanating from these folks. I mean, that is, that's a good point that the, <laughs> the glamour is what the perception is. Yes, definitely. The reality is you are covered in penguin poo or animal poo for a majority of your day and you take it home with you and your car smells like it and and all of that. So that's something that people definitely have to be prepared for. Yeah. I come home every day and my partner smells me and is immediately pointing to the shower and saying, go change. That is a daily occurrence for sure. I'm just picturing you just standing there like, uh, you know, like in Tommy Boy or whatever, just getting hosed down, just (laughs) getting all that smell off of you. That's amazing. So, all right, back to kind of a more serious note here. In your opinion, what does the future hold for the African penguin and how can not just listeners or guests of the aquarium, how can we as a society, as people, how can we help the African penguin? The future looks pretty grim for, for the African penguin and the other 17 species of penguins around the world. One of the main things that is affecting them is their food source, which is fish. And that is related to climate change. As the climate warms, fish are swimming further away from shore and they're going deeper, which requires penguins to have to go out further from their nesting sites and dive deeper and be away from their chicks or their eggs and their partners for a longer period of time. So African penguins, one partner will stay on the nest while the other one goes to hunt and then comes back and they kind of swap. But for a long time, these penguins will go out and be hunting and the partner essentially needs to go eat so they leave the nest and abandon whatever chick or egg is is in there and so that's when sand cob kind of steps in and is able to take care of those those guys but being very cognizant and conscious of the food that we are selecting to eat is going to be imperative to the survival of of the african and and other penguin species as well 
So basically, here in Atlanta to Africa, the best way we can help is make really smart seafood choices. Right, yep. So there are several different apps um, or organizations that monitor the populations of fish. And so just being really smart and selective about what types of fish that you eat and how frequently you eat them is going to be beneficial for, for penguins and other species around the world. Right. Well, yeah, that's it basically is kind of the name of the game right now is making smart seafood choices, not just for penguins, yeah, for everything, right? Yes. Absolutely. All right. All right. So, Jason, right. you know, we, we've we've talked about a lot today. So yes. I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you, I know you've mentioned a couple of really cool experiences before. What's one of your favorite memories from your time at Georgia Aquarium so far? My entire time here has been really incredible, but I'm going to have to go on back to Sand Cob and say that going to Sand Cob was one of the highlights, if not the highlight of, of my career. Getting to see the work that they do out there firsthand and participate in that was, was incredible. There's nothing like being able to see the work that you're doing actually make an impact to a greater cause. And that was an experience I got to have while I was in Africa. So that was pretty, pretty awesome. I can imagine. That's incredible. All right, Jason, thank you hmm. so much for joining us today, sir. Thank you. Some incredibly entertaining stories there. So, And thank you guys all for listening in. I hope you enjoyed those stories as much as I did. On our next episode, I'll be joined by some special guests who will teach us how to train a dolphin. Pretty cool. Stay tuned. We'll see you on the next episode, Life Below the Surface, sponsored by Kia. Life Below the Surface is presented by Carriage Kia in Woodstock. Carriage is the official car dealership of Georgia Aquarium and Georgia's leading Kia dealer. Service, community, and education are hallmarks of Carriage Kia in Woodstock. When it's time for you to lease or purchase your new vehicle, we hope you'll consider Carriage Kia in Woodstock. Check them out 24-7 at carriagekiawoodstock.com. If you're hearing this message, you've listened to the entire episode. And for that... We thank you. We hope you enjoy this episode of Life Below the Surface. If you did, please leave us a review and share this episode with your friends. Also, please tell us which topics you would like us to cover in future episodes. Send us a message in the comments or on any of Georgia Aquarium's social media channels. I'll see you in the next episode.